You're listening to Speaking to Influence, communication secrets of the C-suite. Do you want to speak with confidence and authority, have more influence, and get bigger and better results? Whether you're a top executive, an entrepreneur, or climbing the career ladder, this is the show for you. The leader who wants to inspire others and leave a lasting legacy. Now here's your host, world-renowned TEDx speaker, author, and executive communication coach, Dr. Laura Sokola. Welcome to the podcast, Speaking to Influence, Communication Secrets of the C-Suite. I'm Dr. Laura Sokola, your host, and our focus is on mastering communication as an essential leadership skill so that you can command the room, connect with the audience, and close the deal in any context. This week, speaking of context, I want to be a little bit more context-specific, specifically the context of the world of mergers and acquisitions. And in that space, my guest this week is Dan Bradbury. Dan is the author of, I love this title of the book, Turnover is Vanity, Profit is Sanity. I'll give you a moment to think about that one. He's founded, built, and sold two companies. He's bought five, and he's invested in dozens more. I know people who do that with shoes. He does it with companies. We're going to dig into that. He's also led 15 mergers and acquisitions and is the father of three. Dan, welcome to the show. Laura, thank you very much for having me. Now, what is your fun fact? My fun fact is, as a teenager, I got the bronze medal in the Speed Reading World Championships, which isn't quite as sexy as it sounds, but uh, yeah, I was once saying <laughs> documented as an extremely fast reader. That is impressive. And have you maintained that reading speed? I'm ashamed to say I have not. I still read at quite a clip. I've got a reasonably extensive library here, but it's a physical skill that needs to be maintained. So I've definitely slowed down somewhat. I'm still probably reading one or two books a week. So I'm still going at quite a quiet. That's impressive. And at your fastest, what was your words per minute rate? Not that I have any context for comparison. I mean, I will answer your question, even though it, it does depend on what material that you're reading. Sure, of course fiction versus something really high tech. Yeah. When I got the bronze medal, I was clocked at 3000 EWPM, which stands for effective words per minute, which is roughly translated. They take your reading speed. They give you a comprehension test. If you had 10,000 words a minute and you got 75% comprehension, it would be adjusted to a seven and a half thousand effective words per minute. And that's how they decide who is the quickest. So you have just flip through the book and say, I'm done. Right, right. Wow. That's impressive and terrifying all at the same time to think that you can process that much information all at once, but inspiring. I'm going to go with inspiring as the key takeaway for me on that one. So from there, tell us a little bit more about your personal Dan Bradbury world. What's your 30-second elevator pitch? Uh, that I help seven-figure CEOs scale up their companies and either scale it up and grow through acquisition or prepare to exit their businesses. So Really, we're known for turning business owners into strategic decision makers and financial geniuses. So said a different way, in a more story-based way, when I was a lot younger, I was able to do what for me back then was a very large exit of a company. I built, scaled, and exited a company. And then I realized that there were an awful lot of business owners that needed to know the business tools and skills to be able to do that themselves. So did I hear you say that you were a teenager when you sold your first company? No, I was in my 20s. I was a teenager when I started. I was in my 20s when I sold it. I wasn't going backward. Which is still doggone fast in my space. I'm a little bit older than that. And yeah, it's not happening anytime soon. So uh, very impressive. What I'd love to dig into with you today, having done 15 mergers and acquisitions or M&As. First, actually, let's define those terms. For anybody who's not really familiar with this space, 
difference in like one sentence of sorts between merger and acquisition? What's the difference? To be honest, it's an oversimplification. It's a shorthand. A merger is when you put two companies together and they are combined or they're kind of equal partnership. And an acquisition is when you are acquiring a target. So normally the assets of the company are purchased or the parent company owns a subsidiary. So it's about whether or not they come together, that would be a merger, or whether or not one buys and consumes the other or goes over the top. So like one mega advertising agency that buys up a small mom and pop shop kind of a thing and gets right, their correct, clients along correct. with it. Got Correct. It. Yeah. Okay. So with that context and looking at the kinds of communication that would be necessary in the, I would imagine, rather extensive process from exploration to signing on the dotted line and done deal and really beyond that, because then there's the actual integration part that's required and all the people stuff that goes along with it, all the different communications that go along with that orally and written, of course, we'll focus on the oral, but in that space. I'd love for you to share with us the top three rules or maybe the three communications commandments, if you will, for navigating that path. I really like to take complex subjects. My whole reading background is I'd like to consume all the information, then synthesize down to the basic steps. And I think, unfortunately, the M&A world has got a bit of a bad reputation, but deservedly so in Loads of bankers and lawyers and accountants all charging big expensive fees. But I do kind of simplify it down to three kind of key communication rules or commandments, if you will, for M&A. Number one is connect personally. What that means is not when we're talking about Meta or Google, but a small business owner, anything that is selling single digit millions, a loaf at eight figures, it's done on a personal level. In other words, unless the person that's selling the vendor knows, likes, and trusts you, you're not going to consummate a deal, right? And I learned this the painful way myself. I'd go out there, I'd try and buy companies, and I'd have all this clever stuff, and I'd speak all this spiel, but they really didn't care. What's the cliche? People don't care about how much you know until they know how much you care. Mm. So the first thing is know that it's ultimately, it's a sales job, whether you're buying or selling the company, right? Because M&A, by the way, it's the same set of tools, just the other way around, whether you're selling a company or buying it. You've got to connect on a personal human level. It's a sales job. How do you create influence? How do you create connection? How do you create reports? That's rule number one, connect personally. Okay. Number two is I think you've got to really understand their motives. Some people are listening to this and thinking, well, this is just sales. Yeah, it is. Just at a slightly more elevated or strategic level. In other words, if somebody is trying to buy your company, you think you need to sell them your business. That's not true. Okay, why not? Well, my experience is they're not interested in your company so much as what your company can do for them. Normally, they're rolling up, which is an M&A term for putting multiple companies together to have synergies. You know, so if I have five shops, I've got more buying power so I can get discounts when I'm buying in the goods or I can get sales synergies because I can now sell my products to my newly acquired company's customers and vice versa. So I can multiply my sales from a lower cost base. So whilst the attractiveness of your company, Laura, is of interest to me and helpful, it's not what's going to keep me over the edge. Mm. It's really about understanding how my company fits into your bigger puzzle. What are the objectives? What are the strategic objectives that your company has? And that's what I've got to understand to make the sales job. So it's a consultative sale is another way of thinking about it. I'm not trying to just 
cliche used car salesman person you and just shove it down your throat. It's about asking the questions. You've got the rapport, understand their motives, their strategic motives, and your company is a perfect solution. So that's number two. And then number three, and this is the one that normally gets a huge bit of resistance, and it used to be my biggest area of hatred, was articulate your numbers. Said differently, I used to be, oh, I'm an entrepreneur. I don't do all that numbers accounting mumbo jumbo. Leave that to the accountants to explain and figure that out. But ultimately, somebody's not going to write a seven or eight figure check for your business unless they understand what's going on and unless you're not able to communicate that clearly and elegantly in a way that their CFO can understand, you're going to get nowhere. And of course, what most people miss for is they're unable to articulate their own numbers because they're unable to have a good conversation with their own CFO. They see their CFO or their accountant as this alien being. And I'm not going to lie, <laughs> accountants are a strange breed. I've got a few close friends and they are cut from a different cloth. We definitely have our different languages. That's for sure. The accounting world has a very specific code unto itself that is quite Greek to me. A hundred percent. And so in CEO, I needed to learn to be like a translator. Right. How do you translate this accounting linguistics Mm -hmm. and how do you unpick that in a way that entrepreneurs or business owners really understand and can use? It's not just this thing that's parked off as a necessary evil. It's pack and parcel, especially when you're trying to grow through acquisition or if you're trying to sell your company. Once you've got the report and you understand the motives, really it's a financially based decision because it's an ROI conversation. And most CEOs abdicate from that responsibility. I certainly did. And that cost me an awful lot of money. So let's back up and unpack that because we just got three really clear commandments of sorts for when you're exploring the possibility of buying or selling your business and or merging your business with someone else's business. So I heard number one was connect personally. Number two was understand the other person's motives, whether the other person is the buyer or the seller ostensibly. And number three is to be able to articulate your numbers, particularly if you are the seller, if it's your company that you'd like somebody else to buy out from you. So let's back up a little bit, connecting personally. Now, when you've been on either side, because you've bought companies, you've sold companies, et cetera, where would you start? Because this is, it all seems very impersonal to say, I've got a company, I'm selling a company, which may or may not have tangible assets, may be more intellectual property. Are there people involved with this? And that other company that is, whether it's assuming they're the buyer, again, very big. How do you get to know someone personally? And I would imagine that it's a really emotionally charged conversation and relationship that you're getting into when you're looking at selling your business as well. Is that accurate? Yes, 100%, very much so. And so I don't know how I come across, Laura, because we don't know each other very well yet. I'm enjoying our conversation so far, but I am naturally very, very introverted. And I'd be willing to bet that the vast majority of the people out there based on this conversation so far would not have guessed that. That's just my hunch. Yeah, quite. And so it's a learned skill. And I do, well, my fundamental beliefs is you can learn anything. So the reason why I say that is I wish the world wasn't this way. You know, perhaps some of the people listening might be able to relate this. Like I'm a very, by nature, analytical. I'm introverted and very analytical. That's my tendency. Okay. Uh, my wife's very much the Polar opposite. She's the one that's the life and soul and everybody's best friend and I'm the one huddled in the corner and not wanting to talk to anybody. That's pretty much mm. how our relationship goes. <laughs> okay. The reason why I share that is 
to connect personally, it's understanding them as a human being. Mm. It sounds so trite and obvious and simplistic, but our natural meanings are understanding the numbers and the ROI and how can we drive revenue and the profits, and the, right? And yet, let me tell you a story. By a mutual friend, I was very fortunate about a year and a half ago, in 2022, to get to know a self-made billionaire. Okay. And of course, I'm wanting to make a connection with this man. And he's also, strangely, very private. I think people have this picture of billionaires because the billionaires we see in the media, they've got their media persona and or it's the extroverted ones who are their own brand. But I would say on balance, the majority of them are actually far more likely to be introverted. And this man shuns social media. Even if I told you his name, you wouldn't know who he was. Mm, okay. But, so I wanted to build a relationship. And I'm like, I'm trying to connect with him because there's opportunities and he's got a family fund and so he's investing significant capital, but I'm trying to figure out the way to do it. And it's kind of coming across stilted. Mm. It's coming across stilted and I'm trying to force it. And then all of a sudden I find a commonality. He makes a comment about his son and he also makes a comment that he also has a home in Spain. And I spoke about how my children love Spain, my wife loves Spain. And just on that one commonality, mm -hmm. uh, within an hour or so, a couple of hours of meeting him, we were at an event together. He invited me out to his home, stay at his home for New Year. Now, context, there was a hundred plus people at his home for this New Year party. So it wasn't like it was my family and his, but still it was that common connection of our children and the things in common and the love of Spain that created that bond. And then from that, business deals, transactions have all evolved. And the other thing, which I suppose I'm trying to push people to think beyond their comfort zones. Mm -hmm. I don't drink alcohol or I say don't drink. I used to be teetotal. I drink a handful of times a year. But my joke amongst my clients is, if I'm drinking alcohol, it normally means I'm buying or selling a company. <laughs> okay. uh, the reason why is I'm not morally or ethically opposed or opposed on religious grounds to alcohol. I just don't enjoy the way that it makes me feel. Sure. And I found that there are some business people that really enjoy a drink and it allows them to let their hair down and their inhibitions on what otherwise would have been brutally hard conversation flows. Sure. Not to business, but to personal connection. So I'm not saying you need to drink alcohol if you want to make a personal connection, but it is about seeking commonality, especially on a family level. And uh, my strong bias, as I'm a father of three, is always go to the kids. People love talking about their kids. So if you can connect on a parental level, everything else just flows more easily. Pets are a good backup. I find an awful lot of people, even in the podcasting world, looking for ways to connect during prep calls and things, I would say at least half the time that I'm on a Zoom with somebody, whether it's a client prospect, a guest prospect or someone else, and all of a sudden a tail kind of moves its way across the screen. And I'm like, okay, well, there's a cat or a dog or something else or a little child's nose suddenly peeks itself. So sure, opening those conversations is a fun way because you know people love to talk about those kinds of things. And even if you don't have one, it doesn't hurt to ask about someone else's. Always social media stalking, you know, it's, it's what's the commonality? Sports teams, I'm a big physical fitness nut as well. So you find that thread of commonality wherever it is. And if nothing else, I think one place that I often find that people get stuck in the networking space, not in the transactional sense of networking, but in the relationship development space is feeling like I can't find anything we have in common. If I can't find something we have in common, then I'm, there's nothing to do with this. And I think it's an easy way to 
approach without the pressure necessarily can be simply recognizing that everybody is interesting on some level. Your job is just to figure out what's something really curious that you could learn about that person that would make them interesting. And at that point, if you can dig a little bit more to find something that you find genuinely interesting and unique about them, may just there may be a commonality in there. But if nothing else, you found something that you find interesting. And that's a much more better conversation. It never ceases to amaze me because sometimes people go, oh, Dan, you're so well connected. And I've been fortunate to meet some really high level entrepreneurs. And they go, but you meet them in the weirdest places. So I got to meet a guy called Steve Bennett, who was the only entrepreneur to top the Sunday Times Fast Track 100 list, which is our equivalent of your Forbes list okay. in the UK. He's the only person to top it, I think, three times with three separate companies. Wow. And I didn't seek him out. Do you know where I got to meet him? Where's that? In my local gym. <sighs> I think people believe, it, or I believed, it was about I'd have to say all the right things. And with age, I've realized you just need to keep your eyes and ears open. Yeah. So this gent, he walked in and he was in gym kit, you know, so he didn't walk wealthy, but he was on the phone. He had AirPods in mm -hmm. and he was on the telephone and you could tell just he had the gravitas. Sure. He was still running the board meeting, even though he was standing in a room full of barbells. Right. And I just knew it. And then I was like, hey, how are you? Da -da -da -da. And we spoke about the weightlifting. He was on the squat rack next to me. So we were talking about weightlifting and then I was like, hey, you know, great. I got some sure business owner, started a dialogue and then a friendship and it started in the gym. So the moral to the story that I'm taking from this is just not being afraid to strike up conversations on even small topics, but to connect with people first on a personal level, even before looking at the business details of sorts. A hundred percent. And it's not about you. Most people's resistance is because I'm worried about what you're going to think about me, how you're going to judge me. And actually, I've learned over time, people don't care about you. Yeah. <laughs> they typically care about themselves. And you can find the thing that they're interested in just by listening. Yep. You know, you so see, you mentioned your child, you mentioned dogs. See, whoever you're speaking to is already giving you signals all the time, but we miss them because we're too busy in our own heads rather than being out there with the other person. Absolutely. I often thought about the way people listen in conversation is like if you've ever watched children on a playground playing double dutch jump rope, where they've got the two ropes that are spinning at the same time. And if you've ever been the person who's trying to jump in, you're watching the ropes spin, spin, slap, 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 slap on the ground. And you're rocking back and forth, waiting for that perfect opening when you could just jump in. And I feel like that's how we listen in conversation. We're watching the other person's lips just flap, 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 flap. And we're waiting for a chance to jump in without really paying attention to what is the rhythm telling us what's the information that we should be absorbing instead of just waiting for our turn and if we're going to get caught up in the ropes or make a clean entrance. So there's my little analogy for the day, sports-wise. Right. <laughs> you, you just triggered a thought in me. What's that? Which was, I don't know whose quote this is, so I can't attribute it, but it's not mine. Okay. Which is, leadership is asking somebody how they are and actually giving a crap about the answer. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like actually caring what they say. Yes. I heard that years ago and it really struck a chord with me because so often it's like, oh, well, I've got this narrative. Oh, how are you? And I'm just trying to lead or steer, as in I think I'm trying to lead or steer or move the conversation. I've got an objective that I'm trying to hit. Mm. But actually, if you want influence, really actually connect. Yes. I think that's even harder here in the US because I mean, in most parts of the US, the question, how you doing, is really just a synonym for a hi. And the answer to how you doing is how you doing with an equal head nod as you pass each other in the hallways and keep moving on your way. There's no literal question being asked, nor is an actual answer requested. 
in the process of it. If someone stops and says, well, let me tell you, you go, wait, what? You're going to answer me? Yeah, I- yeah. I, I wasn't really asking. <laughs> no, I, I, I don't want to know. I'm, I'm going to get coffee. No, dude, no, stop. So we've covered an awful lot on question number one, commandment number one, connecting personally. Let's get into number two, understanding the other person's motives. What are the conversations involved in helping us to understand that better? If that's commandment number two, we got to hit that one hard. Yeah. So let me put it this way. It's never about the money. So that seems contrary if you think about people trying to sell their company. Well, I want to get a load of money and I want to be out. But if you ask them, but why? If you get underneath it, it's like, well, I want to be retired. Well, why? Well, I want to move to a different country or I want to pay off my mortgage or I want to and they'll tell you a whole list of kind of ends goals, mm-hmm. but they may have simplified it to be, I need to get this dollar amount for my company exits. And you've got to take it back a bit. Like you loop back this conversation early and say, okay, let's wind this back or I'm paraphrasing slightly. If you can really get underneath that, really what's their intent? What's the reason why that they're doing something? Because the same is true on the buying side. If they're trying to buy a company, go, yeah, I want to make more money. I want to grow. I want Well, okay, for what purpose? And it might be that behind that is they're trying to go for a legacy or it might be behind that is I'm trying to float it on the stock market. But even then it's like, well, for what purpose? And it might be an ego check. It might be trying to prove. I had one person that I knew that was really radically driven, but it was effectively to prove to his father that it was worthwhile. Mm. because his father was exceptionally successful when he was growing up. And the person that I know was demonstrably a bit neglected and felt inferior and not good enough. So he spent his whole life trying to prove and everything that he did to succeed, to win, was actually really to prove his father wrong. Now, the fact that his father had been dead 30 years by this point. Makes it a little hard to actually achieve that goal if your goal is ultimately to get dad's approval. Right. And yet you can understand, and I'm not making a moral judgment, but if you understand what drives people, it's significantly easier to influence them. Mm. Right. And you have to make your own judgment on the ethics of how it's produced. But if you understand that somebody's really trying to prove people wrong, you can present how a certain transaction could help them achieve that outcome. Sure. So tell me about a time when you were selling your company. How did you figure out what the buyer's ultimate motives were? Yeah. Because I've heard the expression that when you want to really understand someone's motives, you have to ask why at least six times. Because it's not until that kind of fifth or sixth level that you finally get through all of the superficial stuff. And you just have to realize what's deep down really has been driving someone their whole life, their thoughts, their fears, their concerns, their utter desires. How did you get to that point? Slowly and painfully. (laughs) Uh, But I'll tell you the trigger moment. So 12, 13 years ago now, I had a very serious brain injury. And I was in an accident. I had a brain injury. And as I was rehabbing in hospital, I realized that I'd been living at a fast pace for too long. And I wanted to take some money off the table and create some more security for my family. By most people's standards, I was financially very well off, but because I'd lived in a high-paced, high-leverage way, if I'd been unable to work, which I thought might be the case, my family wouldn't have been set for life at that Mm. point. So I decided I wanted to sell off a company and cash in some chips and, you know, make it so, right, great, I'm done now. Everything from here on out is fun. And I took this company to the market and I got some offers, but I was disappointed in the amounts. Mm. And as far as this process, I'm kind of struggling to make it work. So I'm trying to sell my company, sell my company, sell, sell its merits. 
And in the process, I happened to tell a supplier that I was a reseller for. So that particular company, which is a marketing agency, used to resell a piece of marketing software. And I told them, look, I'm going to go through the sales process. And so I'm not going to be able to supply you anymore. And they were like, oh, no, what do you mean you're selling the company? And they said, tell us more. We might be interested. And then I was pushing on them and selling to them the same way. And I could say, yeah, no, we wouldn't be interested. And all of a sudden, it was like I had an epiphany when I realized this is what I'm getting every time. Hmm. And so I just stopped in the meeting. I said, look, ignore all that. Tell me why you're concerned. You're concerned that I'm going to sell the company. Why? Mm-hmm. And so I just explicitly asked them. And they said, well, because we are not going to continue to sell our products down your channel. And I said, okay, so what is it you want? They said, well, continued products. And I went, no, no, that's not what you want. What do you really want? Which is really just a different way of saying why in more depth, mm-hmm. right? It's like, hi, how are you doing? That's nowhere near as good a question as, hey, hey, Laura, how are you doing really? Yes. Yeah, a little more weight. And they said, well, we're trying to grow and we're struggling to grow our software in your part of the world. And I went, huh, so you're going to lose this because I'm going to sell the company. If I could be the vehicle to grow you in this part of the world, why wouldn't you buy me? And you could see the cogs whirring around. And they went, huh, Hmm. we never really thought about that. And then I asked, well, you know, he says humbly, (laughs) a really great question, which was, Like, what would it have to look like for it to really, really work for you? Mm, Great question. And this is really a segue into the third question uh, uh, or the third commandment about articulating your numbers because it's crossing the bridge from understanding their motives. They said, look, we need to sell X many units of our software into the United Kingdom, which is where my company was. And they said, we're currently running at this level and we want to be at this level. And I said, okay. And they said, so if buying your company enabled us to hit that target, like that would meet our major strategic objective. Because this was a company that was looking at the times for on the NASDAQ and it was owned by a major VC firm, that a name that everybody listening to this call would know. Okay. And they said, that's like a major, major objective for us. And I went, okay, great. So help me understand what does that look like? If this could do that, how many units is it? And they said, the number of units. And I said, oh, truthfully, I'd have to explore. I said, but what do the commercials need to look like? And they got into articulating their numbers first, which was helpful for me to be able to then come back to them and pitch how I could help them reach their objective. And they said, and I'm making these numbers up now mm-hmm. for memory and all for confidentiality, which is they said, oh, look, you know, our customer lifetime value is $20,000 and we can allow for a customer acquisition cost of $3,000 per new user of the software. And so if we can get X many hundred units from the acquisition of your company over the next 12 months or 18 months or 24 months, that would absolutely justify our purchase. Got it. So I had my monetary number that I wanted to hit at that time. It was a low seven-figure number. And I just needed to divide that up. So I went away and said, let me think about it, see how this is feasible. And then I went away. I knew the number that I wanted to achieve for my own gain. Yes. Right? Clearing off my mortgage for being financially set for the rest of my life, which is my goal. And I knew that in order to do this, they used to get X many customers. And so then I just needed to come back with a strong case for how the company could help them do that and how that process was going to work. And so then I was able to articulate how our size of database, 
how our various lead generation approaches, how the company's profitability would help fund further marketing spend and customer acquisition for them would help them hit their goal. And then from a company that wasn't in the running, I had an offer on the table, Laura. It wasn't anywhere near as big, but I had another offer and I was already in due diligence at this time. And yet this other company came in, the software company, a lightning lights and transacted and bought the company in a timeline that the lawyer said was impossible. They said it was impossible. But what happened? There was personal connection. I really understood their motives and I was able to articulate how my numbers could help them hit their numbers. So it sounds like it's a litmus test. It's not necessarily that if you have all these, that the sale is imminent or guaranteed. But if you don't have these, it is guaranteed that the sale's not going to happen. Would that be a fair summary? Yeah, correct. You're passing through those gates, those connecting gates. If you don't have number one, they're not going to trust you. It's not going to proceed. If you don't have number two, they're not going to be motivated enough to make it happen. And if they don't have number three, they're not going to have the faith to push the button to write the check. There we go. One, two, three, push the button, write the check, sell the company, and you're secure for life. Okay, that might not exactly have been the lesson to be taken <laughs> from this, but, but it certainly is a launch pad to get us all moving in that direction. Dan, I know there's so much more that we could be diving into deeper and wider. Uh, unfortunately, we are just about out of time today, but I believe you have a gift that you'd like to give to our audience today. What is that? So look, I want you to learn about your company. So we have a business profit maximization scorecard. So if you go to the homepage at danbradbury.com, you answer simple more choice questions and you'll get a custom 20-page report that analyzes your business in 10 different areas and shows you how to maximize the profitability, which will also rhyme with maximizing the value of your company if you are looking to sell it. Interesting. Okay, so for all you business owners out there who've ever even just had one brain cell kind of toying with the idea of maybe someday what this could look like, Go to danbradbury.com and find that business profit maximizer scorecard. Did I get that right? Yep, you did. You did a great job. Love it. And Dan, share one more time the title of your most recent book and where people can find it. Turnover is Vanity. Profit is Sanity. Nine and a half steps for improving your profits and cash flow is available on Amazon. And all the good places books are sold along with my other book, Breeding Gazelles. Fast growth strategies for your business. And uh, also, if you're still listening, I'm going to take that as a good sign. Feel free to check out the Dan Bradbury podcast as well for all things business growth. Absolutely. Absolutely. It was breeding. Did I catch the subtitle of that first book that it was nine and a half points or tips or something along those lines? Yeah, nine and a half points. Why a half? Got to know. Just cut to the chase. I was built it as I wrote it and it started with nine and it ended with 10. And really, it's kind of like a sub step. So uh, it's 10, but it's arguably nine. So in the end, I was like, okay, we are an hour long meeting debating whether it was nine or 10 and to separate it out. And the end, I went, you know, what? I'm just going to call it in the middle. So not at all. I love it. Nine and a half points. I love it. That's terrific. Well, it was great talking to you, Dan. How else can people learn about you or connect with you? The best place to go is danbrower.com. Links to all the socials are on there. Obviously, the book and the podcast. Sounds good. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I've learned a lot. I bet everybody else out there has too. Thanks for having me, Laura. And everybody, thank you, as always, for listening. 
Be sure to subscribe if you haven't done so yet so that you never miss an episode. And don't forget to give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or your platform of choice so we can help even more people to increase their confidence, presence, and influence. And finally, if you want to download my free guide to equipment recommendations for virtual influence, including my picks for microphones, lights, and more, go to speakingtoinfluence.com. I'm Dr. Laura Sokola, and you're listening to Speaking to Influence, communication secrets of the C-suite. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Laura Sokola, and I want to sincerely thank you for listening to the Speaking to Influence podcast. If you love listening to these episodes as much as I love bringing them to you, be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And please go to iTunes right now to rate and review our podcast in order to help us expand our reach so even more people can master the three C's to command the room, connect with the audience, and close the deal. Thanks for listening to Speaking to Influence, communication secrets of the C-Suite, the show for leaders who want to speak with impact. The hosts, producers, owners, and media distributors of the show make no guarantees that the strategies and information discussed will result in profit or other success and may result in losses. The opinions and statements of the hosts and guests do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the owners, staff, managers, broadcasters, or sponsors of the show. No medical or psychological therapy or personal or professional wellness or relationship advice is offered in the show. You are advised to seek counsel on matters related to your health, family, relationships, job, or other business and legal matters from licensed advisors in those areas prior to making any changes in business or lifestyle. No information provided may be suitable in your situation. As always, take responsibility for the decisions and actions you take, including the reactions they may make in your work, family, health, and life.